Here's a non-lawyer's guide for artists, creators, and entrepreneurs about copyright, trademark, and patent. But maybe I shouldn't call it that because Entrepreneur Magazine has spent millions and millions of dollars suing entrepreneurs for using the word entrepreneur. It would be a little bit like Time Magazine suing people who make clocks or who use a watch, or a little bit like The Atlantic Magazine suing people who live on the East Coast of North or South America, or even the West Coast of Europe or Africa. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about what you might need to know but might not understand about patents, trademarks, and copyright. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Sometimes it seems like if you want to start a business, you need a rich uncle or a bank or a VC. But that's not true. Some of the greatest projects of all time have been bootstrapped, built with a different model. The Bootstrappers Workshop is back from Akimbo. You can find out all the details at akimbo.com go. It's a chance to build the project that you've dreamed of, to find independence, to make a difference. You can be a bootstrapper, but it helps to know the best practices. I hope you'll check it out. Akimbo.com go. Back when I was a book packager, my job was to invent books and then build them. Along the way, we ended up creating 120 books, some bestsellers, most not. But in order to sell 120 books, we came up with more than 1,000. More than 1,000 book ideas, some of which took a minute, some of which took six years. And along the way, after sending them out tens of thousands of times to hundreds of editors in the book business, only once, exactly once, did someone steal one of my ideas. Of course, the idea they stole ended up selling more than $100 million worth of books. But even in the moment, and especially now after all these years, I'm gratified that I had an idea that someone could steal and turn into a $100 million business. What should we do about our ideas? What should we do when someone steals our ideas? How should we keep people from stealing our ideas? How is it that Syracuse University, ostensibly a nonprofit in the public interest, tries to trademark the color orange. What would it even mean to say no other sports team is allowed to have an orange logo? Even if we get the 64-color box from Crayola, there's only 64 colors in it. What are we going to do? Start trademarking mauve? It's going to be a challenge. There's a land grab here. It's driven by scarcity, it's driven by public markets, and mostly it's driven by lawyers who are trying sometimes to do their best, but who make a mistake about what it would mean to do their best. So first, a little bit of background. If you rob somebody's house or if you vandalize someone's car, the cops should show up at your house and arrest you. That's their job. But there are no copyright police and there are no patent police that patents, copyrights, and trademarks are about civil action. What it means is that if you own one of these things or you think you own one of these things, you can sue someone else. It is P 
peer to peer. One lawyer sues another lawyer. And in general, when we're talking about this sort of civil action, the person with the most money, who cares the most, will ultimately prevail. Not always. Sometimes the good guy wins. But often, if a giant corporation decides to put the screws to somebody by spending a fortune on lawyers, lawyers who aren't keeping track of what's right and what's wrong, but simply keeping track of how to win, we have a challenge. And so before we go down the road of, as a creator, playing in that space, we need to decide if we want to be in the business of hiring lawyers, engaging with the other team's lawyers, spending the time and money to litigate for these rights, which might be morally ours. That's not the question. The question is, is it a choice we want to make? In this short riff, I want to talk about the three kinds of intellectual property, why they're generally a good idea, and how to understand the differences and when to use them. So let's start with patents. Patents are new, useful, and non-obvious inventions. Traditionally, they're a device that you can get a patent on anything except a nuclear weapon and a perpetual motion machine. And you used to have to bring in the device itself and show the patent examiner exactly what you had invented. And the reason that we want to give inventors protection from being copied is simple. It takes a bunch of years to be able to invent something new, useful, and non-obvious. And in exchange for you telling the world exactly how it works, the government gives you a limited number of years where you're the only person who's allowed to make something that works exactly that way. So you can see the advantages here. By showing everyone exactly how it works, you're making it easier for the next inventor to come up with something better than yours. That's good for all of us. Not good for you, but good for all of us. And in exchange, you get to profit from all that work you put into your invention. Now, there are people who would like to broaden what it means to have a patent. So Amazon got a patent on one-click shopping. Now, you could argue that one-click shopping is obvious because once you hear the phrase one-click shopping, you know exactly what it is. However, back then, the patent office was giving out process patents like candy, and so Amazon grabbed one. Today, it really doesn't make sense for you to go get a patent unless, A, you have at least $25,000 to risk on the process of time and money it takes to get one, and B, once you have one, you believe it will help you with finance or some other business-building activity that will give you the money to then sue the people you think are infringing on your patent. As you can tell, I'm not a giant fan of patents. I have a process patent. I invented something when I was at Yahoo that would enable a digital currency of attention online. It was super fun to invent. I'm glad I don't have to be in the business of protecting it. The other two kinds of intellectual property are a lot more relevant to this discussion. The first one is trademark. Trademark is what it sounds like. It is the mark that we put on the thing that we sell in trade. It goes all the way back to the idea of Wedgwood China because you wanted, when you bought Wedgwood China, 
to know that Wedgwood made it. It goes back to the days of Bass and Guinness and beers in Britain. You wanted to know if you bought a Bass ale, you were getting an ale made by Bass. There was a mark on the keg. There was a mark that made it clear who made it. You can see why this is useful to our culture. Because if it wasn't in place, then anyone could pretend to make anything, and it would be extremely difficult for someone to invest in maintaining quality. But of course, because there are laws and there is money and there are lawyers, it has been exploited. Pat Riley, the basketball coach, got a trademark for the word three-peat. Well, the word three-peat is a fascinating coinage for what happens apparently if a sports team wins three years in a row. But no, it's not a trademark. It's not a trademark because it doesn't tell you who made some goods and services. Owning the right to put the word three-peat on a t-shirt does not help anyone. It is not in our culture's interest to make it so that people can start stealing phrases from the culture, like the color orange or the word entrepreneur, and try to keep other people from using it. Be able to start Atlantic Magazine, Time Magazine, or Entrepreneur Magazine, because the names of those magazines tell us who made the magazine. But if you want to run an entrepreneurial workshop or an entrepreneurial conference or an entrepreneurial something else, you should be allowed to do that because the word entrepreneur is a word. It is not the source of goods and services. What does this mean for you? Well, if you're a creator of something and you want to be known as the originator of those goods or services, it really helps to A, pick a word or phrase that is really obscure, unique, original, just yours. Because it's tempting to call your new startup Apple or Orange or Blue. But as soon as you do something like that, the odds are somebody else who has already tried to claim that word or phrase for their line of goods or services is going to come after you. And then you're setting yourself up for needless heartache. And B, something that goes with A, find a core domain that matches the name you want before you start using the name. Here's the reason why. If you own akimbo.com, it's really unlikely that a big, powerful company named Akimbo is out there protecting its trademark. Because if they were, they would probably own akimbo.com before you did. And so it is not as valid as a trademark search, but it is a fine place to go. That doesn't mean you have to own the basic.com for any name you want. But what I am proposing is that you pick a distinctive trademark, not a descriptive or a generic one. So what do I mean by this? Distinctive, also known as fanciful, means that you pick a phrase that has absolutely nothing to do with the thing you do. So if you wanted to come up with a new line of cars, calling that brand Gefiltefish is probably safe because Gefiltefish has nothing to do with electric cars. On the other hand, if you decide to call those cars Edison, that's getting a little bit closer. And if you decide to call those cars electric, well, you're not going to get a trademark for that because the word electric 
describes what you do. It is descriptive. It is close to generic. It is the name of the category itself. So what we're looking for is a fanciful term that has not been used in the area in which you work that you can win by protecting. And part of that means that your SEO will take care of itself. Because if you pick a unique phrase, one where if you type it into Google, you're the first match, now your job is simply to get people not to type in the generic, I'm looking for window screens, but to type in your name. Because if your name is the only one, they will find you. Now, once you have a trademark in mind, you have the option of registering it. Registering your trademark simply means filling out some forms, paying a little bit of money, and sending it into the government. There are legal advantages to registering a trademark, but it is not required. What is required is that you use it, that you use it in interstate commerce, selling something to somebody else over state lines regularly, promoting yourself, building the website, et cetera, et cetera, and treating it like a trademark. That's why you'll see a little TM after a logo, because what it says is, I, the person who made this thing, am considering this my trademark, hands off. After you submit your paperwork, if you choose to do that, the government posts it, publishes it, and says to the world, this guy, this woman, they think they want a trademark on this. Any objections? And if no one objects, you get an R with a circle that you can put after your brand name. That's a way of saying, not only do I think this is my trademark, government of the United States agrees with me. Again, as soon as you publish your trademark for opposition, opposition might show up. Now, if you're building something of scale and significance, better to have the opposition show up early rather than late. But when opposition shows up, that's going to cost you money as well. A totally irrelevant aside, there's all this arguing that goes on in trademark and copyright, less in patent, but in trademark and copyright, because everybody gets to make up new rules as they go. It is one of the most plastic forms of law because you have adversarial parties on either side arguing for what they want to argue. Until very recently, you couldn't get a registered trademark in the United States for a term that was offensive. And no, I'm not going to say any offensive words on this podcast because they offend me as well. But I think you could imagine why the government doesn't want to be in the business of memorializing hateful or offensive terms in their paperwork and honoring that person with a registered trademark. Well, recently, a rock group with a term that many people might consider offensive, certainly offensive to the members of the rock group itself, fought all the way to the Supreme Court and won their case. So it's entirely possible that you could name your brand something offensive. Ask your local attorney. And then the third one. The third one is copyright. Copyright does not protect your idea. If you want to write a fantasy novel about a young boy wizard who goes to a school in England and finds all these adventures, you can do that because ideas are free and a good thing too. It's a good thing that we can take ideas because if we can't, well, then we wouldn't have West Side Story. If we can't, almost every play, every book, every concept, every business, every painting would be against the law. You can 
paint a picture of somebody sitting in the park. That's not a protected idea. The first person who painted a picture of someone sitting in a park could not say to everybody else, nope, I own the idea of painting people sitting in the park. What a copyright protects is a specific expression of an idea. If you want to write this fantasy novel and the main character's name is Harry and his friend's name is Hermione, no, you can't do that because it has been concretized, written down by the original creator. She owns the copyright in Harry Potter's adventures. So as soon as you write something down, whether it's a painting, a musical composition, an essay, a blog post, the words, the specific words, there's a copyright in those and you own it. And you don't have to do anything for that copyright to exist. As soon as you publish, as soon as you put that in front of one other person, you have a copyright in it. Now, that doesn't mean you can do anything with that copyright because once again, it's up to you to start chasing people, suing people, filling out DMCA forms, etc. That's a choice. So we could spend all day talking about what's the best strategy to protect your writing, your idea, etc. But I have a different take on it. And again, like trademark, you can file papers to memorialize your copyright with the government. It's not as important as it used to be. It used to be you had to send actual books to the Library of Congress. This was a clever way for them to make sure they had plenty of books in their library. But now, thanks to the Berne Convention and other updates in copyright, you don't have to do anything. If you care about this, keep track of when you did it, print it out, put it in a folder. But the fact is you own the copyright. If someone has put something in writing, in photography, in pixels, in ink, don't take it because it's theirs. Okay, so what should we do about people stealing our ideas? There are only two things I can think of. One is you could go chase those people. You could harass those people. You could make them stop. And the second thing you could do is make more ideas. You have the moral and legal right to chase people who steal your stuff. I can tell you, because I have partners, that if you steal my audiobook and post it on YouTube, my partners and I will cause you to take it down because I owe it to them. But if you want to take one of my blog posts and post it somewhere and make it clear that I'm not you and you're not me, well, then that's okay with me because I'm just going to have another blog post tomorrow. That doesn't mean you should have to do this. doesn't mean you should have to let anybody who wants to take something you wrote and put it in the world, put it in the world. But it's a choice. And it's a choice as a creator. As Tim O'Reilly has pointed out, we think our problem is piracy, but our real problem is obscurity. Obscurity. People don't know you. They don't trust you. They don't want to hear from you. And if you come up with an idea that gets shared, if you come up with a video that's put in lots of places, if you come up with a meme that spreads, you're probably not going to get any royalties from that. But what you will get from that is the credit that goes to the originator. What you will get from that is the chance to do it again. So I'm not arguing against patent, trademark, or copyright in this rant. I'm simply pointing out that we have choices to make. Choices to make as publishers. Don't steal stuff. 
you're better than that. Don't violate someone's copyright or trademark or patent because you might get sued. It might cost you a fortune. It will distract you for a long time to come, and it's nothing for you to be proud of. But if you're a creator, you also have decisions to make, decisions to make about where you will put your time and energy. Then when we approach creation from a position of insufficiency, it feels like this idea, the best idea we've ever had, is probably the last idea we're ever going to have. And so we get into the mindset of how do we protect it. But if we can approach creativity through a sense of abundance, we realize that the $10,000 we might have to spend protecting this or the $30,000 we might want to spend patenting it, we would probably be better off building a network effect instead, building a community, building connection, building the authority that comes from being the creator, and then going on to the next thing. So I'm thrilled that there's a regime in place to protect people who own things, but not things you can put in your pocket, simply things that change our lives. But we need to use that wisely. We need to commit to not being a trademark bully, not chasing people down because their store has the word backcountry in it, or because they dare to call themselves an entrepreneur. And yes, as creators, we need to think really hard about the change we seek to make and the best way to make it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast, like all my podcasts, is copyright 2020. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is the time to level up? When is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead? to engage in possibility. Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Questions this week from all over the world, and they're intricately related. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Osama from Karachi, Pakistan. And I wanted to ask you a question regarding which projects to choose. So I was reading the practice uh, in the process of reading the practice. And I just finished Bernadette Jiva's uh, brilliant book, Hunch. And so my question was that after reading Hunch, um, I was able to recognize a lot of problems that people face in the construction sector in my country. And I was coming up with an idea of um, an app that would solve 
the problem of sourcing and all this uh, issues. And it will also make a community which would help other people who are beginning to build a house to create something which would be um, both communal, it would have the network effect, and also would uh, make building the house easier. And so it's not just about me, it's a generous act because something, because this is something that I struggled with when I um, took on the challenge to build my parents' house. And so, but before reading Hunch, um, I was in the process of uh, reading uh, a lot of books about consulting and uh, Blair Inn's brilliant book, Win Without Pitching and all this stuff. So I was really uh, moving towards building a brand design agency. Uh, and so after reading Hunch, I felt like the act of making a consulting agency is somehow less generous compared to something which is building this app, which I've been thinking about for two or three years now. And so my question is that, yes, building a brand design agency is easier, but building this is a lot harder. I don't have any funding. I don't know any people. And so what is worth pursuing right now for me? Is it the brand design agency? Something that I really like building brands, but I'm not as, I don't feel as committed or as uh, fulfilled internally as I do with this uh, app idea. And so I really want to ask you, like, what should I pursue as a beginner in business and someone who's never built something? What should I do? I really, really, really appreciate the work you do. Uh, you've changed my life multiple times with every single page, with every single line. And I really want to thank you. And I'm looking forward to your answer. Thank you for this, Osama. Thank you for being generous. Thank you for seeing the markets and the people who need the work that you do. Long time ago, before people noticed that there was this internet thing, I came up with this ornate plan to pioneer the way people might be able to use email to spread ideas. But I was only able to do that because a dozen years before, I had started a book packaging company. When you are an entrepreneur starting out without a lot of funding, without access to Silicon Valley, without a platform to stand upon, my strong advice to you is to find clients who are easy to find and ready to pay you for the work you're going to do. That bootstrapping your work, meaning you're funding it with money from your clients, not funding it by mortgaging your house or by going to a bank or going to a venture capitalist, focuses the mind because it forces you, as Steve Blank has talked about, to get customer traction, to develop relationships with customers because if they're not paying you, nothing is happening. The idea of a consultancy in Pakistan for brands, probably not a crowded space right this minute. And you know who the people are who need to hire you. And you can probably outline how you can create value for them. And by getting paid to create value for them, you build a foundation, you build momentum, you build credibility, you build networks. And so, months or years from now, when you have the resources to launch this multi-sided marketplace app for people building a house, you will not need to make it pay in a week or a fortnight 
because you've got momentum. And entrepreneurs benefit from that. People changing the culture benefit from that. Every once in a while, some college student gets it right, right out of the bat, and the next thing you know, they've changed everything. But that almost never happens. That one of the beauties of being in college when you're starting a business, as I started a business, is you don't have rent to pay if you figured out how to cover that because you're in college anyway. You have plenty of time. You're surrounded by smart people who are eager to support you. I'm a huge fan of taking that sort of swing when you're in college and have time to do so. Worked for Michael Dell and for a bunch of other people. But most of us aren't in college. Most of us are trying first to overcome the inertia that comes from having a job. And to that, I say find a market that knows it needs you. Charge them appropriately. Give them more than they pay for. Repeat. And then, once you've got momentum, understand sunk costs and your dreams well enough to take a deep breath and go do the even harder, more generous work. Thanks for this. Hey, Seth. This is Alex from Richmond, Virginia. Thank you for your blogs, your books, your podcasts. They have all been great uh, teachers to me in my work. Uh, you inspired me to start my own blog, which I send twice a week via email. Um, I'm really proud of what I'm creating. I feel like it's great work, uh, but I'm struggling to find an audience. Now, I tell myself that the blog is just for me. The purpose of it is to clarify my thoughts and to keep me creating, but I can't shake the desire to want more subscribers. So my question for you is this, should I care who subscribed? Should I care how many people are subscribed? If not, how do I stop caring but if so, how do I expand my reach? What should I do? Thank you for this, and thank you for the work you're doing. Here's the question. How much are you willing to pay for an audience? Because audiences rarely come free. It might take time. It might take sweat equity. It might even take money. You might have to compromise what you want to talk about. You might have to focus on topics that don't interest you so much. You might have to adopt a voice a point of view that the audience wants, not the one that you want to share. If you're not willing to pay any of those prices, if you want to make the blog you want to make or the podcast you want to make or the book you want to write, then that's what you should do. It doesn't matter what the medium is. It's up to you because you can. And if you persist, it may be that 10 listeners get you, 20 listeners get you, 100 listeners, and then you're on your way. But maybe not but the journey is still worth it because you are developing your voice. On the other hand, if you're willing to pay to get people to listen to you, then go do that. Not with money, but by understanding who it's for and what it's for. By showing up for the right people in the right way that makes them want to listen and even more important, want to tell the others. Because as soon as we start doing it for the audience, we are engaging in a bargain. And the bargain is, for people who want this, I have this, I have this, come, here it is. If you can't make that bargain, then it really pays to say, this is a blog for me, this is a podcast for me, this is a book for me, I wrote it in my voice, for me to read it. And if you want to, please feel free, but this is for me, nothing wrong with that. And if someone listens to it, that's fine, but it's not for them, it's for me. Good luck with it. And to cheer you up, listen to the next question.
Hey, Seth. Stuart here from Fredericton, Canada. This week, I celebrated my one-year anniversary since launching my podcast. Now, after 52 episodes, I've seen a number of really interesting things happen. One, I've been able to have access to guests that I would have never otherwise been able to connect with. Two, I've developed a modest audience that continues to grow week after week. And three, I was able to break into an industry and get a job as a result of putting my thoughts out there. But I'm committed three years to this project. And so as I'm now one third of the way into the project, I want to take some stock and see where else I can go with this. Now, I know the point of having a podcast is not to get super famous or to get paid necessarily, but I would like to use this as a point of leverage for future opportunities. As someone who's early in my career, how do you think I should be thinking about this podcast as both a long-term project, but also as a catapult that can help me in uh, future opportunities? Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks. Congratulations. This is the home run of podcasting, not getting acquired by Pandora or Spotify, but in fact, figuring out how to use your podcast to show up in the world as you want to, to build connections and credibility and get to the next spot. Can it catapult you to the next level? Well, my hunch is that the podcast has done much of what you set out for it to do in a three-year period of time. Your commitment doesn't mean you have to stick with it forever. Your commitment to your listeners, to yourself, to your career is that you are looking for a certain result. My hunch is that sticking with it a bit longer makes sense because you want to develop a portfolio, a portfolio that includes your podcast, but lots of other things as you assemble a catalog of projects. Because as I've written about, projects are a really good way to build a career. As long as we accept that each one can be a sunk cost, that we can walk away from one when it ceases to serve us, as long as the promise that we have made to the people who are engaging with the project isn't one that would damage us or them if we wrapped the whole thing up. So going forward, you can hone your voice. You can be more specific about who it's for and what it's for. You can push yourself to find ever more generous projects You can reach out to Osama in Pakistan and figure out how to broaden the way you're talking about what you do to intersect with what he's talking about. All of these things weave together. It's not cut and dried. It's a lot more complicated than that. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But When are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But 
it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.